Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Patrick D. McCoy, and welcome to Across the Art, the I to Sing America series. This is a very special interview on this rather somber day as we examine the events of, of recent days in the in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. I'd like to just pause for a moment of silence. Thank you so much. Um, just in the midst of everything that's going on, I just want to uh, have this moment with this great artist, just to let everybody know, in spite of everything that's going on, we still have joy. And I'm honored today to welcome Kenneth Kellogg, based to the broadcast today. Kenneth is a native of Washington, D.C., a graduate of the Duke Ellington School, has sung on many of the great operatic and concert stages. He's a favorite here, and um, I just want to share his story with you and let him be able to have this, this platform and uh, just get insight into how he's dealing with this time. Good afternoon, kiddos. Uh-oh, I think we're muted. Let's see. There you go. <laughs> thank you. We, I'm, I'm glad we just had to get that little moment of levity. So, Kenneth, thank you so much for being here. I know that there's a lot going on at one time. We have COVID-19 and social distancing, and now we have the traumatic uh, event uh, following the, the tragic murder of George Floyd. First of all, I know that's a lot to unpack, uh, but first of all, I want to say, before we even get to that, you know, this interview between us is long overdue. Of course, we met, I would say, around 2009, and, uh, you know, we, we did some, you know, uh, print things then, but it's been a little gap in between, but of course, I've been to your performances, and we've been trying to get together based on your appearances uh, with Blue and Washington National Opera, which ended up being canceled. But let's just go back there. COVID-19, social distancing. Talk to me a little bit about that. How did you adjust or have you adjusted to that? I think by now I have adjusted. Yeah, it was, it was when it first happened, we were just days away from opening in Washington, D.C., which I'm still looking forward to. But then, like it was such an important message, I couldn't just wait to bring it to D.C. You know, and then we got the news that we were canceled. The day, just a couple hours before we went to a dress rehearsal. And, you know, I thought it would be a couple of weeks. You know, I was like, all right, a couple of weeks, we'll be good. We'll get back to business as usual. And I came home, and, you know, the day started to get two weeks and then months. <laughs> and it took me a while to get out of this, this singer mode, which, you know, we're, we're constantly on the go. We're trying to get to the next gig. We're trying to get the next gig, trying to learn a rep. So that was my mode for the first two weeks, man. And on top of that, trying to homeschool as well. But then, you know, I got news of cancellation. That's canceled, that's canceled. And it, it put me in a place of, of one being lost, because a singer is how I identify myself. It's, it's what's motivated me every day. Because it's, it's such an all-encompassing art and career. So it's habit taken away, and there's literally nothing you can do to get on stage right now. I'm forced to start looking at other things in my life that I enjoy. 
I miss. Um, like I'm spending more time with my family. Like I've dropped into my heart. I've rediscovered some things that you know I had to sacrifice for music. And I'm kind of loving this this period. Thank you. Talk talk to me and and the, the listeners and, and the person you know on Facebook. Talk a little bit about blue because blue is very. Uh, poignant, especially probably even now, the fact that, you know, it, it, it talks about many of these issues that are going on right now in this moment that we're in. Could you maybe go back to when the when the opera premiered at Glimmer and Glass and maybe talk about that? Well, first of all, what were your initial viewpoints when you got uh, introduced to this particular opera on this subject? Of course. The blue team at a time when I got um, I say it's like the perfect time because I, you know, it's around the time where, you know, we're doing like Trevor Martin and Mike Brown and Garth, just black man, black man, until every other week it seemed. And, you know, being an opera singer at that point, you know, traveling the world, getting to be in all these fancy places, getting to do all these things that, you know, being a singer affords you, felt, um, felt empty. It felt disingenuous. I felt like I, wasn't being of service to something that was really important to me, which is black lives. Mm-hmm. I couldn't, I felt guilty flying to Europe to see a debut, knowing that my son could potentially be a victim at home. Mm-hmm. So I contemplated quitting opera because there was nothing in opera that was speaking to these issues. And like, I was frustrated, you know, being on stage, singing Zerastro while, you know, black men are being murdered in the streets. And when we 
and glimmer glass. And glimmer glass is predominantly white town in upstate New York. I would walk my son through the streets of glimmer glass, walk down to the lake every day and feed the fish and feed the dogs. After the premiere, there were literally people in the streets that would stop me and my son and recognize us. And Stephen, he was in the show as well, who recognized us almost in tears, mm-hmm. telling us how poignant it was for them, how they couldn't speak when they got home. They didn't know the pain that black families deal with when it comes to police violence. So it allowed them to, 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 to empathize on a level of that I don't think they would ever had to before. And in our form that they love, you know, they go want to see hustle. They want to see all these things that pull at the hard streets. I don't think they'd ever expect to see I'm not gonna call it a black opera because it's not a black opera. I don't think they ever expect to see an opera dealing with the heart and emotions of a people that they don't normally consider on a daily basis. They white people we really have to think they really have to think about the emotional impact on black people. They really do. There's no reason for them to. But when you're going to the opera house for an art that you love, most opera lovers go to the opera house because it's an art that they love. And you're confronted with that subject matter in an art form that you normally associate with, with white issues. And you feel that impact. Blue is really special to me, especially to that, that sense. Sometimes there's a misconception um, in the black community that, that there's not like a strong uh, like father figure. And I know that we have different uh, scenarios that you know sometimes you, you have the father present, sometimes you may not for whatever uh, circumstance. Um, could you go a little bit more in detail the the fact that your son was involved in this opera with you on the stage? Uh, could you maybe parallel to how you, maybe your relationship with your father and, and the things that you may have seen and really appreciate it more as you look down at your son in this in this opera with you? Of course. Well, my father, my father was absent. I didn't have a father. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I knew my father, but he wasn't, he wasn't a real parental figure. He wasn't around that much. Um, <clears throat> so I knew when it came time for me to be Accept the role as a father and step up as a father, and step up and marry, and for happily marry the And so, into fatherhood, it's almost this thing of like, I know what I didn't have, so I know everything I'm going to get. And being a father is one of the most important roles in my life. <laughs> and um, it wasn't even my idea to have Jake be a part of the show. So, I accepted the role, Taz role, and we talked, we talked about it quite a bit. And he, being the director, he remembered a picture I posted of me holding JV as, as a father. And so, you know, that is the picture that I want to represent fatherhood in the show. When I think of fatherhood, that is the picture that comes to my mind. So, you know, they asked me, me and my wife, if they used that photo for our work for the show. I talked to my wife about the implications of it. You know, do we want Jamie's face tapped to this opera for the rest of his life? We talked about the implications of it. And it was something that we, you know, we agreed to do. And I think it was later on. It's like, you know, we were in rehearsals, and there was this, there's a scene where, like, 
sons of infants, then it automatically jumps to the son being its name. And in reverse, we felt like it was so abrupt and there was no transition from an infant to being a teenager. You know, Janine and Taswell thought there could be an interlude where you could see, you know, see the sun as a toddler. And I had a toddler. So as well, you know, that picture, that connection you have with the sun is what I want to talk about. So I asked if Jamie could be on the show. Wow. Um, I want to kind of go a little bit backwards because, you know, we, we have many experiences that form us, and especially as we move to our professional careers. Talk to um, the audience about the role of Duke Ellington, and how did you really find your voice and know, hey, I want to be a singer? Uh, yeah, I, I said you can find that in Duke Ellington, actually. What Ellington did for me was... So growing up, I always sing in, in, in elementary school choirs. You know Carolyn well. Like, yeah. I don't know any musician in D.C. that has come to Carolyn Weller's singer. So I had them in association. She was my music teacher in elementary school. Um, and she just infused this love of, of music from a very early age. So from elementary school, I was always, you know, this awkward kid. Exactly. I love basketball. I did all of those things. Like I did chase sports. I did all of those things. There was always this quirky side of me that loved music, you know? Um, so when the time came for me to go to high school, my mom moved to Kelly and she knew, also knew of the, 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 the dangers of, you know, being on the streets in the 80s and 90s in D.C. So in Ellington, you were in school from 8.30 to 5 o'clock. She's like, all right, you're auditioning. <laughs> you have some modicum of talent. You're going. So I auditioned for Ellington. And I had known Sam Baum because I was in you know, the voice choir when I was in elementary school. So it wasn't totally foreign to me to go over to Georgetown to, to, to be a part of Ellington. But when it came time for me to go to high school, my mom was like, go audition. I sang for Sam Baum. So like, I and I sing in choirs, but I wasn't like a musician, you know. And I didn't have any songs prepared for mm-hmm. my audition to Ellington. So I was like, ah, I'm like, I kind of know you. Like, just singing Happy Birthday. You know? And that was my audition to get into to go into school of arts. When I got there, what was so formative for me was, one, coming from my area of D.C., the Northwest D.C., seeing, you know, Drug addicts walking down the street, you know, seeing things that were prevalent at that time. A lot of negativity. One going to Georgetown was like this oasis of, wow, like life can be like this. Duke sits in the middle of one of the wealthiest parts of D.C. So I catch the bus over every day. And it almost gave me this sense of, okay, I don't have to live that life. Like, I can. I can go to another side, even just another side of town, and feel different about myself. I can I can carry myself with different air. Um, and in, in in the classroom, I was also amongst my peers who also had this quirky thing as kids. We were all in one place. We could all really just be ourselves and enjoy our art and make art and express. So when I left the building, I went back to my neighborhood. 
anything in Gideon, you know. Um, so Ellington was was this haven of expression that I still carry today. So I'm I, I'm a musician, I'm a professional officer. But I'm not I'm not I'm not one of these sing, like singers that could tell you like oh that breathes in Christ my ear, oh that like breathes like that's not me. Like I love opera from the point of expression, mm-hmm. and I got that from Ellington. Wow. Now, you mentioned Carolyn Glover, who I definitely knew the late Carolyn Glover, and I know her son, James Glover. I was I, I reminisced early today about a concert that she put together at the Church of the Redeemer Presbyterian. And I was telling, I was sharing with everybody, if you don't mind, I said, even though I'm older than Kidd, I said, I feel like Kidd Kellogg is my big brother, because here he is, like, six five, And it made me... And it made me really think about that concert that Carolyn Glover orchestrated. And if I'm not mistaken, Stanley J. Thurston played for you all, but it was you, Kevin Thompson, and Solomon Howard. And it was a wonderful program because there was no ego, and both of you, well, all three of you guys are six five, and you have this larger than life presence. But there's a gentleness that I always feel when I'm aware you are. Could you maybe talk about? Um, I know that was a long time ago, but could you maybe just talk about the whole aspect of brotherhood in this art form and how you connect with maybe people that you might consider as mentees or people that you're mentoring? Yeah, of course. I mean, being a singer is, one, it's a very solitary career, it's a very solitary art It's often you're in the practice by yourself, <laughs> working on music, working on notes. When you get with a pianist, like there's some level of collaboration, but most of the work is done by yourself in the studio. On top of that, there are not a lot of not a lot of black singers, not a lot of black male singers. When you get out into a larger world of, of opera, um, so you tend to find when you when you find brothers in, in opera, you find brothers that you can connect with who do what you do and understand that thing better than anyone else in that Like a lot of my friends outside of opera were great friends, but they don't get like all of the intricacies that happen in the field. Mm-hmm. That's something only you can only understand when you're in it. So when you get you know, Solomon Howard, when you get you know, Kevin Thompson, I can call them up like, <laughs> how are you doing this? <laughs> like, like, what are you doing? Like, how did you get that step? Like, how, like, they get it because they're in it. And there's a, it's a very, it's very few people who understand it on the level unless they do it. So that brotherhood is very tight. I mean, I, I call, they all call Solomon, I'll call Kevin, I have a couple other you know, black singer friends that I'll call just because they get it. You know, there's no need for explanation, there's no need for, they get it. Wow. Um, if you don't mind, I want to kind of start interspersing some questions because they're coming in, and I think that'll be a good use of our, our time together. And for some people who may be may getting, be getting introduced for the first time, it'll be a good thing. So um, you have a question here from Stephen Mark Baudouin, who's the executive director of the Washington Course, which, of course, one of our major symphonic choirs here. He's asking... So what is the future of blues given the pandemic? Is there any chance that excerpts might be shown? Mm-hmm. So there are companies dying. I was just on the phone with, with 
Minnesota is funny when I'm doing it. Chicago is playing on Chicago Lyric Off, but still, you know, because you got canceled, they're funny when I'm doing it. Um, so it's, people are dying to do it. It's just a matter of when we can get back to work as usual. Um, I mean, I think the cast now are working on releasing some excerpts because it's so pertinent to the time. Mm. Um, and it needs to be heard. I mean, I've gotten several emails from newspapers, like, when it, like what's happening with Blue? When is Blue going to be heard? It needs to be heard. We want to do it. It's just a matter of can we do it safely. When you said that it may um, happen in Minnesota, I'm just yeah. I'm just trying to even fathom. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I'm just trying to even fathom the, the, the emotional weight, even though it might be removed from this moment that we're experiencing now. You know, you know how sometimes you just have a song or an experience, and even though it happened a little bit removed from the moment. Uh, when it comes back again, it's, it's more poignant than ever before. So, I, I, oh, oh I, I'm getting myself all worked up to think about it. Actually, that's what you want. You know, that's what you want. I always say, when I do this theater, like I want to feel something. Mm. Like I want to be either happy. I want to be like, like I don't care if I'm crying. I don't care if I'm miserable leaving the theater. Like I want to feel something. If I'm not leaving, feeling anything leaving the theater. It was pointless. Pointless. I don't care. Like I don't care if I'm the best right Wow. Uh, you have a few of your colleagues on here. Um, soprano Karen Slack, Pamela Simonson, Aaliyah Wahi, Stephen Costello, Kenneth Overton, Dana Anderson, who's the executive director of the Heritage Synage Corral. Uh, you have a, a few people here, and and, and, I, and and the list goes on and on. So I want to go back now, um, since we're kind of in the vein of opera. Talk to me about your introduction to. Uh, I know that you, of course, you're from here, but it's a little bit different when you leave and then come back. I think the reception is always different when you leave home and return as a professional. Talk to me about maybe one of your first experiences when you got a chance to sing with Washington National Opera, how did that feel being able to be on the big stage at home? It's, it's humbling, one, because going to an art school, the Kennedy Center was right down the street for one. And then being in the choir, like you can you go and you back up for, you know, people come in to the city. Like, so you get a chance to be on stage, which always is behind. I never thought, I never thought I would have a Never start out to be an opera singer, really. Um, so to get to be on the stage at the Washington National Opera, one is very humbling. Like I'm thankful. Like I, I mean, I, I guess the biggest thing is I can see that I'm, I'm thankful for it. And art for me is an expression in the end. And for people to one want to hire me to get on their stage to express something, it's humbling. Um, you've of course done recitals, you've done other concerts. I think one of the most memorable performances uh, that I really uh, put in the, the hallmark of, of my concerts with you is when you had the opportunity to sing the heightened creation 
with the Cathedral Choral Society. And if I'm not mistaken, that was your, your first uh, concert with the late J. Riley Lewis. Would you mind just talking about a little bit about uh, working with him and his demeanor and his impression on you? It's funny because I, I moved into that, but my bus route from my neighborhood to Georgetown, like I would take 30 buses down Wisconsin Avenue and I pass it in Cathedral every day. And you know, being from DC, you see all of the you know, presidential funerals, you see all the, the engagements, they all happen in that national cathedral. And I remember you know, vividly seeing Denise Graves sing in there all the time. Mm. And Denise Graves also went to Philly. Yeah. You know? So when I first got you know, the offer to sing in that building, I, don't, I can't tell you what went through my body. But there was something. Um, there was a feeling of, okay, Denise Graves sung here. Presidents have been very confused. So I feel like you're stepping into to shoes that are far bigger than yours. And you're just thankful to be in that place and to follow that spirit into that place. And working with Jay Riley, like he, he loved music, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Theater. So we didn't rehearse it that much. So he had a lot of trust in the people that we hired to do the job. I think we maybe had two rehearsals. It's like, okay, I trust you. If I made a mistake, I trust you to get it right. You know, he trusts us. Um, and he, yeah, he just he's the love of making music with You know, just just going back to your concert experiences and your operatic roles, you've had a, a variety of, you know, forays into different composers, whether it's Mozart, whether it's Verdi. So you're very diverse in that regard. Could you maybe talk about your experience with Champion? Champion, oh, yes. <laughs> so Champion, so I'll parallel that. Um, Champion. I had no idea, really. Like, I knew it was formed in um, St. Louis. I hadn't seen and when they asked me to do it, it's like, uh, sure, I it's a baritone rule, but like, let me look at it. You know? And it was high, it was high as hell. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily, like, I'm one of those singers who can't say, can I do it? Like, can I accept that challenge? And I got a couple months, like, can I stretch myself? And then I started to read the story and I started to, to read about Emil Griffith and you know, him being. Gay, but not being able to be open about it, and also being a welterweight champion. I say singing for me is ultimately expression. Like that's what I love about it. But I knew that you know, that was a story that, like, if you're gonna let me tell it, like, I don't know how well I'll tell it. <laughs> if you're gonna let me tell it, I want to. So I stretch myself, stretch myself vocally to to be able to tell that story, and it was a challenge because. Dealing with subject matter that's foreign to me, and I get worried.
to keep going and go there. So when I got to rehearsals or champions, I talked to the director. I said, I don't know what you have planned, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about comfort levels. I might talk to the other actor. And I literally just let myself go. Be able to tell a story that I felt really important. And champion is probably one of the best. It's funny, I have a poster of it hanging in my studio. It's probably one of the best artistic experiences I've had because it was the first time that when I got to tell a story of a black And it was the first time I really got to dig into uh, a character beyond my own comfort. Well, I must give a shout-out to Karen Slack because she just interviewed Terrence Blanchard on her Kiki Conversation. So shout-out to Karen Slack. So she had a sit-down with him and his, his lovely wife, so that, that was wonderful. Now, I want to go back to something that you just mentioned, if you don't mind, um, because I think it's very often that people will, will uh, pair sexuality to uh, an art form or a certain thing, or if you're a... Um, um, male musician, you have to be, you know, um, gay, you know, because you're a musician. So uh, if you don't mind, because I know I'm sure that there are a lot of artists, particularly male artists, who, who kind of struggle with that. Uh, what would you say to them in terms of being, um, I guess, open and authentic in that regard? As far as them being male, as far as just the fact that you're, you're trying to communicate the art form, you're not concerned about all of the other stuff. If that of makes sense. For me, I often find that when I'm uncomfortable in a situation, I can't really express myself. So, therefore, the art isn't really genuine. So, I just say, be yourself. Everyone has their difficulties, everyone has their challenges. Every ego matters or doesn't matter. Um, being yourself is the most authentic and as an artist, authenticity is what most So we can see through everything. Now, talk about your home life. Um, talk about your wife and because uh, I'm sure people like to do that little stuff. Like how did you guys meet and, and what's her how is she receptive to you being an opera singer? So, Here, 
how do you spend your time during this time where live performances are put on hold and are you singing virtually? Came up with 
for me to send me to school for music. Wow. I can have a scholarship, but the only stipulation was that I had to major in music. And that kind of like pushed me in that direction of, of going to music. And it's funny because my whole career has been that kind of thing. Like I'm like I love a lot of things. And I've always been kind of okay at music. <laughs> I mean, a lot of other people have sought my talent before I have. It's kind of like guided me and pushed me in that direction until I really caught on and said, okay, I, I can do this. Like I've tried to quit music so many times. <laughs> um, but it's something that I, I love the challenge of. I love like, I'm a, I'm a quiet guy, I'm a very shy person, as you told me. When it comes to So you mentioned that you, you have an aversion to a lot of different things, a lot of areas. That's something that I've been paying attention lately that, I, that I'm sure that a lot of people have been paying attention to is your wonderful drawing. Oh, my goodness. Talk about how did you learn to draw like that? Because I know the, the one um, picture that you drew is the famous one where you see all of the lashes on the, the person's back. And uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about the, the depth of that and what moved you to to draw such a moving, a like probing piece? Of course. So I, I loved art ever since I was a kid. I've always drawn just for fun. So when I was at Ellington, Ellington was a school of the arts. We had all of these different, different fields of visual arts being one. By the time I got to my senior year, I had done all the coursework for music, and I'd done all the academics, I had all my credits. So I had extra time. So they let me major in like visual arts my senior year in high school. So I was the first person at Ellington to both have like a music major and a visual arts thing. Um, so there's always been a love for arts. This particular piece that you're talking about. It's funny because during that period of, of like not really knowing what to do and trying to do everything in music to stay stay relevant, you know, like I was practicing hours looking at scores and studying scores not really knowing when we would get back to being able to make music in public and it felt empty mm-hmm. it felt um, it felt empty not knowing when happened. I started to get a little lost and depressed then I sat for a couple of days and really, really thought about you know, what makes me happy mm-hmm. and art was always one of those things that I could go to as a haven and a release for some level of expression. So one time, like I realized that, I hopped up and went to the art supply store. They loaded up a couple hundred dollars worth of supplies and started making art. And I was a colleague who I had posted a couple of drawings online before. This colleague, I want to do this picture for me. And all right, sure, why not? And it was his idea, actually. It was his idea to do that particular picture. And I started it for Eric Floyd instance. Of George Floyd instance. And through that piece I found some level of, of being able to release of being able to release this rage that I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Being able to release, you know, the anger and the pain, like all of these things I was able to release through drawing that this is the history that went along with it. And I, I have seen the picture like, throughout history. I've seen, seen it over and over again. I've never 
research for it or what the significance of it. So once I did that and found out that it's called fixed called Richard Peter. And he escaped slavery, went to the north and joined the, the army. And that picture, you know, the scars on his back was impetus for the Civil War. You know, it was proof that you know, the South wasn't just fighting for really, really about trajectory when you were here um, in preparation for, for Blue. Talk about uh, that experience you had when you saw yourself on the, on the side of the city bus. Thank <laughs> you. 
did the sound come through? Can you all let me know if the sound has come through? I'm not getting any feedback just yet. Can somebody confirm and let me know if the sound coming through from the recording? I'm assuming they can hear it. Oh, I 
<laughs> Sorry about that. Um, Tim, what I was about to say is that you, you perform a variety of, of different composers. Uh, could you maybe, especially if you have singers on here, um, how do you approach when you're learning um, a, a different period or a different style? Do you, do you approach it the same way? Talk about, uh, about your process, how you embody a different style of a particular composer. You know, I think one of the, one of the benefits and backdrops of being a piece in the Young Artist Program is that, one, there's not a lot of, at least when I was in Young Artist Programs, <clears throat> there's not a lot of, it's really one of them. So anytime something slightly baritone comes up, like, oh, wait, let's give it a hand. Like, if there's a baritone part, there's no baritone in the program, like, you're advising. Um, so it, it forced me to try a lot of rep. It forced me to try a lot of things that, you know, a Rossini center can't do. You know, a Rossini center can't explore much because their voice is that, and that's what it does best. But being a lower voice, especially my young artist experience, I constantly had to sing stuff that though may not have been right for me at the time. Um, but it forced me to be adventurous and to explore. And I take that approach to how I work on music now. I mean, if I get an opportunity or someone asks me to sing something, like I'll look at the score. Um, but I'm always up for a challenge. You know, like I'll figure out how to make it work with my my mechanism. And my, my technique doesn't really change based on the repertoire. What changes for me is is how I want to express it, and I, I find a way. And I find with the expression of a piece, my technique automatically finds a way to do it. I hope my next question is not a silly one, but I I guess I'm always thinking different things. Has there ever been a time where I know I asked you the question about the style and and and, and so forth and so on, but has there ever been a time where you know whether you felt you could sing the night they they offered you or, or whatever the organization where they offered you a nice uh, coin or a nice check and that might have been like the motivation to say hey it's better to accept this because I I know I'm gonna get you know substantial pay as opposed to oh I'm not gonna say this because it's not stylistically right for me. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Before, yeah, and so I went to Japan. Japan, you know, they asked me to do uh, uh, well, Christmas oratorio at Messiah. Mm. I was like, yes, of course. I, mean, I think it was my first Messiah, actually. And I sang the chorus parts, of course, coming up, you know, choirs and stuff. It was my first time doing solos. I didn't know really how difficult it was, but that chest is so sweet. <laughs> like, I kind of couldn't say no, you know. Um, so, one night we did the Bach Christmas Oratorio, which is high and it's Bach, you know. And I managed it. And then the next night we did Messiah, and we got to that aria. <laughs> that aria. And I'm in the middle of it. I don't work. <laughs> but I, I'm 
save my butt um, that I hadn't planned on. But yeah, I, I, I did do messiahs for a long time after that because I knew I, it was an experience that I could really fully express myself and uncomfortable. So I avoided messiah for a long time because of that experience. You know, the unique thing about Messiah is that, you know, you have some arias that are definitely bona fide base arias, and then you have some arias that are baritone arias. And so sometimes the, the, the person who's cast as the, you know, quote-unquote base, you have the responsibility of, of, of basically executing the baritone and the base arias, with sometimes not the consideration that it's a little bit high, you know, or, or too low for one singer. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, our time is just about up, Kenneth. I would, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for being willing. And I'd like, like to, to just to say again, you know, this chat is long overdue. We've been trying to, to get this together. I think the most recent time I saw you was at the University of Maryland for the opera showcase, and you were a judge. And I moderated under the auspices of the Coalition for African American Performing Arts. I think that was probably one of the last times um, that I saw you. But it's so been, it's been so good to chat with you. And just as we wrap up, are there any um, final thoughts? I know it, this has, again, been a heavy time, and I just want to thank you for just sharing this moment with me during such a, uh, a dark hour. But uh, I thought it would be appropriate because you have such a wonderful story. Uh, you're a black father, you're navigating this, and um, what's maybe like a parting thought that you would want to share um, as it relates to um, the temperature, for lack of better words, in the arts community during this this season of uh, COVID-19 and, and maybe um, just moving ahead to this moment we're in right now with George Floyd and um, just, just talk, whatever you want to share at this moment. That's heavy. That's, that's really heavy. That's a whole I have the pro. I have the pro account, so we could go. <laughs> we could go another house. Black singers, black people in America, have suffered for years, and we we we've screamed and hollered and, and burned and rioted and rooted generation after generation. We, we've done all of it to be heard, and and I think this is another reiterance of that want to be, but what do we want them to hear is, is a question I, I ask. You know? I, mean, I think America has such a history that we are, are, are fates are intertwined. Unless we're going to fully separate from, from each other, our fates are intertwined. We have to find a way to make it work, be it you know, white people finally understanding our pain and, and letting up Keeping the knees off our necks, letting up and letting us us breathe a little bit, um, and us, you know, I mean, it's hard. I can't say tamper that either, but us screaming and being vocal about what we really want. I mean, it goes beyond respecting me. It goes beyond hearing me. It goes beyond seeing. What we really want is the power to control our own destinies. And we can't, if an opera company, you know, okay, we'll hire you. We'll hire you. We'll, we'll, we'll put you on our stage. We really still aren't in the driver's seats. We'll always be subject to 
there's not an institution in America that's not racist because it's just the foundation of opportunity. It's the foundation of opportunity is racism. You know? <laughs> um, so, this is a long conversation. I can talk for hours and hours and hours. We may have to do a part two. Easily, I'll say that our people are 19. And we have to, to find a way to make it work. And anger right now is that way. But after the anger has to come some real solutions. Thank you. I want to close with this poem for, for whom this series is, is named, I Too Sing America by Langston Hughes. I too sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes, Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this very special conversation with Dave Kenneth Kellogg. Kenneth, it has been an honor, and again, I can express uh, enough my appreciation for having this time with you. And so many people have been on here, and we're about to run out of time. But I just want to thank you all for supporting this interview. Again, I am Patrick McCoy, and this is Across the Arts on the I2 Sing America series. Thank you all so much. <laughs>